0: Fantastic, thank you, Dave. So we are in the second week of Lent, and I hope that you guys are involved in some form of practice that is helping you prepare for our um, commemoration, remembrance of the the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you're not, it's not too late to jump into that whole enterprise, so uh, don't feel like you've missed the train. Uh, The last week, Jim jumped into um, the conversation about covenants, and he um, started talking about what is the purpose of covenants, and what happens is uh, when, when we chart, when we take a look at the covenants through scripture, what kind of a picture do we end up getting? And... I thought to myself as I was you know thinking about well what kind of tack can I take or what can I say that would help bolster what Jim is bringing to the table and I realized that just the notion of covenant for me is very foreign like the idea if 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 I were to you know <laughs> try to get a handle on what it means I really honestly It's a very, uh, you know, it's ethereal, elusive, I'm not too sure. And so I figured, well, maybe we should start there. Because it's important enough, you know, to talk about. And it seems like the Lord thought it was a good idea to, you know, put these things into place. So maybe it's helpful just to unpack it a little bit, you know. Because I can guarantee you that if I were to introduced the idea of covenant to any of my friends who aren't comfortable inside of a church, they would look at me like, what are you talking about? I have no clue. This doesn't make any sense. I mean, the closest thing that I have in my life is uh, I'm, you know, happily married. And so I, I have an understanding of a covenant, a, a parody covenant that Jim talked about, like where you have people that are on equal footing. Um, you know, so the idea of a, a covenant of marriage makes some sense. And I'm like, I, you know, I like this. It's, uh, I like being married. Um, so that's a good thing. Uh, and the, uh, the covenants that Jim talked about, you know, we had the parody one where you're dealing with some sort of a negotiation or some sort of a, you know, Two parties are trying to figure out the contract between the two of them. But when we have a disparity covenant between like a king and a servant or a master and a slave or God and us, uh, you know, he laid out this idea that it's a different game when we enter that world because as Jim pointed out with this disparity covenants, God always chooses the partner of the covenant. And he always declares the terms of the contract. And he always determines the consequences of breach of contract. It's always called his covenant. Um, A covenant partner, us in this situation, um, we're never in a position to negotiate the terms. And uh, the only real choice that we have is to either accept or to reject the covenant. So it's like that's that's kind of the lay of the land, and so Jim he left us with these two questions. he says, "Well, what do we learn about the house that God wants to build by looking at these covenants and last week he talked about that first covenant with creation um, and how God created this symbiotic relationship between the earth and humanity, and that that was important um, and so but he's like, well, what do we learn, and why did Jesus come to die? So he asked those two questions, and I thought, well, those are excellent questions. If I were to uh, hazard a guess, um, I think he's probably going to tell us more about that. So I figured, you know, what, what is something useful that I can say about the issue of covenants? In 21st century, you know, uh, Summit County. Like, is there something that is like, well, is, does the rubber meet the road anywhere? Can I, is there any sort of application? Is there, you know, what is it? And this is what brings me, this is kind of where uh, I want to start, is the idea of whatever is, is. And you hear these kind of statements and people are like, well, yeah, duh, you know, what is, is. It's like yeah that makes sense but in our world today this idea of something being solid and immutable whether or not we you know we agree with it or not is kind of it's 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 not such a popular idea um we all you know we're we come into the world we're born into existence we have you know, a set of circumstances that we have to grow familiar with. And we end up with a certain lens that we filter all of these, these brute facts. These just, uh, these, this information that comes at us. And how we filter that information ends up really helping us understand our reality and helping us move and negotiate life and all that kind of stuff. But some lenses are not as good as others. And so that's kind of, I was like, well, maybe we can can start there. And so when we talk about what is, it's an interesting question because it begs the question of whether or not something is truly real or whether something is true in the sense that capital T truth, like, you know, you can have your truth and you can have your truth and I can have my truth and that's all great. We all get along just fine. But is there something that is ultimately true, that is deeper, that is more bedrock? In our story, you know, we start out with the Genesis account, in which it says, um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So, at the beginning of our truth, that we would say this is true, we have a creator. We have God who created something that is distinct from him. It's not part of him. He created something that's outside of him. And we're part of that creation, and it's good. So that's a good place to start. Excellent for, uh, you know, as far as uh, some sort of ground to stand on from which to understand. It's like, oh. We're part of a good creation. That's that's I, I like that idea. And then part of the story, as the story goes, we had this this other uh, problem, is that we didn't really like the the terms that God had laid out in the garden, and Adam and Eve chose to disobey, and we had this fall. And uh, one of my one of my uh, favorite authors is a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton, and I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff, but if you haven't, um, he's super fun to read. Uh, This is from a book that he wrote called Orthodoxy, and it captures this idea of what happened with the fall. So, he says, we have all read in scientific books, and indeed in all romances, the story of the man who has forgotten his name. This man walks about the streets and can see and appreciate everything, only he cannot remember who he is. Well, every man is that man in the story. Every man has forgotten who he is. One may understand the cosmos, but never the ego. The self is more distant than any star. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, but thou shalt not know thyself. We are all under the same mental calamity we have all forgotten our names. We have all forgotten what we really are. All that we call common sense and rationality and practicality and positivism only means that for certain dead levels of our life, we forget that we have forgotten. All that we call spirit and art and ecstasy only means that for one awful instant, We remember that we forgot. And he goes on to talk about this state of amnesia. He says that our condition, the human condition, is similar to that of a person who was washed up on the shore after a shipwreck. And he awakes to find wreckage all over the shore, strewn in the sand. And he walks along the beach, and he picks up these artifacts from the wreckage. He picks up things like love, and truth, and he holds them and he looks at them as tools, but he's forgotten what their real purpose is. They're foreign to him now because he can't remember. And uh, that was his vision of what humans, uh, the human experience is just that. It's like we have this, we have forgotten our way. We have this state of amnesia. Our compass, as Jim likes to say, is broken. Another uh, writer that I really enjoy is Blaise Pascal. And he had a different way of presenting the same idea. And he talked about human beings as deposed royalty. Like we all carry within us some sense of greatness. And we sense the depravity, the height from which we have fallen. And he put it like this. He said, The greatness and the wretchedness of man are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach us both that there is in man some great source of greatness and a great source of wretchedness. It must then give us a reason for these astonishing contradictions. What a chimera then is man. What a novelty. What a monster. What a chaos. What a contradiction. What a prodigy. Judge of all things, imbecile worm of the earth. Depository of truth, a sink of uncertainty and error. The pride and refuse of the universe. And so I bring these thoughts up because they are present today in Summit County. Every single one of us inside this building and outside of this building has that notion of depravity and greatness. And you capture it, a, a good friend of mine he, that I've been playing music with, he sings uh, a song by, it was written by a guy named Paul Hoffman. Um, he's with Green Sky Bluegrass. And I wanted to read these lyrics because I just wanted to, this song is popular, like people know this, and the words are telling. They capture this same sentiment, so I just wanted to read them for you. $27 in an old jean jacket and there's dust under the collar because I've been walking for hours, but I'm almost where I said that I would be. Just like long television, this heart full of ambition has been haunting my dreams, reaching for grander things, and I never really knew if they could be mine. But I'm out, way past my prime, looking for reasons I didn't get my time. I keep a bottle top list of the chances I've missed, While I'm on my way to that vacant place And I promised myself I would not escape One more drink And I'm anyone's useless mess Just a helpless man with no self-defense If I'm not yours What are you looking for? But I'm out way past my prime Looking for reasons I didn't get my time My knees aren't leading when I seem defeated if I try to save face before I make it to where I said I and I swore that I would find. Captures this idea. Captures this idea of, you know, this heart full of ambition, reaching for greater things and then being a man who is someone else's useless mess. Helpless with no defense. Greatness and depravity. St. Paul caught the same idea when he was wrestling. He's like, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And why are the things that I want to do the things that I don't do? I don't know if I just said that right. But he said, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And so we all are in that boat. Your friends, my friends, family members. We walk around with, in this kind of state of amnesia. And, we, and we, we, we love to hold these things like love and truth and justice and mercy and strength and beauty. But they're, like Paul says, we're looking through a glass darkly. It's like they're just, they're obscured. They're somehow, that's not, I don't understand it well enough. And so we find ourselves in this mess with tools that we've forgotten how to use, with a broken compass. And we find ourselves rejecting the idea that we are beholden to some higher authority. As Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. We don't like the idea. We don't like the idea that someone is the boss, that someone makes the conditions of the contract, and then we don't get to negotiate the terms. It seems kind of like a, you know, a big, bullish way to, you know, it's like, who, who, who gives you the right to do that? I'm me, especially here in the West, in Summit County, probably. The, we have a, a, runs deep in our blood here because we're all adrenaline junkies in one form or another. Otherwise, we wouldn't live here. But we've got to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan said in the song. He says, we don't like the idea that we're not the boss, much less the idea that we don't get to negotiate the terms of the contract or the penalties for the breach of the contract. We like to be our own master, and we reject any constraints. Even those that come from a creator. And this is where I get to make my plug for this new book that we're reading. It's not a new book, but it's new to us. The Great Divorce. We're jumping into this, and I'm going to read from it in just a second. But I wanted to say this is exciting because we're, we're reading this, and then I'm pulling in an actor who does a one-man presentation of this, and he's going to do this in May. So if you guys want to... You don't have to be in the class, but... If you want to read this book just to freshen up, it's fantastic. You guys will love it. But C.S. Lewis had this to say um, in, the, in the preface to this book. He references an author by the name of Blake who wrote a book called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. He says, the attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either or. That granted skill and patience and above all time enough, some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found. That mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without our being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. This belief I take to be a disastrous error this idea of trying to wriggle our way out from underneath the either-or. We don't like it. We want it to be our way. We want to self-style our reality to fit ourselves. And uh, if I, like, the conversations that I've had with the people in our community, here in my community, I would say that the the primary response to that either-or is yeah, that's fine. That's, that's, your, that's your truth. That's not my truth. This is my truth. And, you know, that person can have a truth. And I'm saying, yeah, that's all fine and good until, well, what happens when your truth and, and my truth, can, they collide with one another? What then? You go, Well, might makes right. Whoever has the bigger stick gets to make the rules. Basically. And now, uh, you know, as it's been handed down to us, we end up with language gains and people controlling narratives. And the idea of truth has been very much ejected from our culture. And it all kind of stems from, like, this project of removing God from the conversation. We take God out of the conversation, what happens so this the the, the naturalists project it 's like Stephen Hawking he he was uh, very direct about stating that human minds and everything that y- it comes from them, all of our thoughts, everything it's all a byproduct of the mechanics of the universe. Physics and energy, that's all there is. But to swallow that pill, ah, now that's a trick. Because what have we done the minute we take God out of the picture and we we, we try to take this on and live with it consistently? And so, there was this project... To try to emancipate ourselves from the idea of God And initially this, there was a very nihilistic approach And a lot of my friends up here they, they swim in these waters of nihilism Which is basically the negation of everything The negation of knowledge, ethics, beauty, reality In nihilism no statement has validity Nothing has meaning Everything is gratuitous That is, it's just there. That's what we have. That's what we have to work with. But it's a very depressing worldview. It's like, well, if it's just there, uh, why do I care about anything? What should I, you know? And so you had some people come along on the heels of that idea and saying, well, that's where we need to make the division. There's the world of the objective, the world of the hard nuts and bolts of reality, but there's the subjective, and that's where we live. We create our own meaning. We, we, we are like God. We can self-style our reality. And some famous uh, thinkers along these lines, um, Albert Camus and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. I was just reading about these guys. They both tried to live out this kind of a reality. They rejected God, and they said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna create my own reality." And neither one of them, at the end of their lives, both of them, they rejected a lifetime of fighting against what the Lord had put into place. They were fighting against that either or. And it was funny. I was I was reading about this, and it reminded me of a conversation I had with a student of mine a long time ago. And he was one of these guys. His brain worked fifty times faster than mine did, and. Um, I, I was always amazed. Like, I would pull up an idea and I would try to, like, heavy, you know, like, Alec, check out this idea. And he would pick it up and he would, you know, spin it around and it was, he was doing tricks with it. And I would get all irritated because of the facility uh, he had with his brain power. It was amazing. But I was thinking about it and I was like, huh, that reminds me of a conversation because I had mentioned how both Camus and Sartre had come to reject their philosophy. And he's like, oh, I don't know if that's true. I, just, I can't believe it. I've never found it in any literature. And so I found it again in another uh, book and it made me think about this. And so I thought, oh, I'll try to co- oh, give him a call. So I tried to get a hold of him, but my information for him was bad. And so I was like, well, I'll text his mom. I wonder if she still has his, if that information's good. So I texted her and she's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you texted me just now. Cause she moved out of Summit County like 10 years ago up to the Pacific Northwest. And it just so happened she was driving through Summit County when I texted her. And she was like, that's so strange. Alec would love to hear from you. Here's his contact information. So I was just like, oh, that's fun. You know, the, the timing of the Lord is really, uh, I don't know, I get a kick out of it sometimes when you get those connections where you're like, huh, amazing. But anyway, so we have these guys that they're trying to, they're trying to emancipate themselves. Trying to say, I don't, have to, I don't have to agree to these terms. I'm going to make my own terms. I'm going to play in my own turf. And then we have this, you know, very much to what we've uh, arrived at is this whole postmodern idea that no one narrative is really true. It's like, your narrative's good, yours is good, yeah, it's fine. And everything devolves into a will of power. So whoever, whoever controls the narrative, whoever has the biggest gun, makes the rules, basically. And so we have these lenses, but no matter what lens you choose, you end up having to deal with brute facts. You end up having to deal with reality at some point. You cannot escape it. But the question that I find really interesting when you try on these different lenses. You know, you say, well, let's take, I want to look through these ones for a bit. Oh, I'll try that one. The interesting question that I like to ask is, what happens to the human person? What happens to your definition of what it means to be human? If you're, uh, you know, convinced that atheism is the, you know, we just have to be brave, you know, stiff upper lip, accept the reality that there is no God and we're all that's here. Well, okay. Answer me this question. In your definition, you know, in your dictionary, if you look up human, you know, noun, what are the words that follow that, that define what it means to be human? Accidental burp of the universe has no origin, no purpose, no meaning, no destiny. Huh. Well, that's kind of depressing. I don't know if I like that idea. All right, let's try a different one, you know. So uh, I'm going to go into, maybe uh, I'm going to start looking into some Buddhistic uh, thoughts. What happens to a human person there? Hmm an illusion that hopefully one day will end up being you know, subsumed into some universal consciousness or the void or whatever that means huh so my wife is an illusion, there's no distinct personality there with whom I interact and play and love and enjoy life it's an illusion huh I don't know if I like that idea And no matter where you turn, you know, there are several options on the table, different lenses that you can choose. But this question has a wonderful way of illuminating what is at stake. And I guarantee you that all of these people out here, they're walking around in that same state of amnesia that we're in, but they don't have any of these covenantal signs that are pointing us that are serving as a compass to say, you're not a mistake. You are here on purpose because you're created by a creator. You have meaning. Your life has purpose. You have hope beyond the grave. I guarantee you, that if there's something that people need to hear, it's that. Especially if they've been awash in these worldviews that are saying exactly the opposite. So it's a fun little project to to play and be like, you know, you're offering me this, uh, this worldview that seems so very exciting because I can, you know, I can make my own truth. I can but if you're making your own truth, are you your own definer? How do you define yourself? It's a problem. In uh, Dave read a passage out of this, um, this bit in John, and I wanted to read the fuller passage here. This is out of John 6. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so when we circle back to those questions that Jim asked, What do we learn about this house that God is building by these covenants? These covenants are part of that blueprint that detail what is. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he's not saying that I'm an option among other options. He is making a very strong truth claim that this is what is. There is no other. I am the way, the truth, the life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Like it or not, either or, either this is true or it's not. And that's a big claim that Jesus is throwing out there. And then the second question, why did Jesus come to die? And I believe that alongside this idea of presenting, this is reality. I created you, I created everything you experience. You can kick against the goad all you want, but it won't change that fact. But woven into the fabric of this existence is the idea that God is love. And Jesus came to die to drive that point home. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That idea of whoever believes in him, its all that is is making a statement of faith that says, I am aligning myself with what is true, with what is real, with what is the bedrock foundation of our existence. So in our world today, that is awash wash in all of these just competing views of what is real and what is not real, people are wanting something that is solid. It's like that old hymn that says, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. In the middle of a deluge, people look for solid ground. If we can present to people the idea that they are inherently imbued with dignity, that they have purpose, that they have meaning, that they have hope, that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still, because He is underneath, He is the bedrock of reality we can present that idea that's a way better option than any other option that's on the table we can introduce him to a lord of love whose grace knows no bounds in a 1941 address to um, a school Winston Churchill had this to say he said, never give in, never give in, never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convinc- uh, convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. And to that I would add, never, never, never forget to remember from whence you came to whom you gloriously belong and ultimately where your hope truly lies. Because it is with this kind of conviction that Paul was able to say, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, may we grow to know you in a very fundamental, real way. And we just pray, Father, that as um, you teach us through your word, through your covenants, that these tools that you put into our hands, love, truth, justice, mercy, that they would become more familiar and would help us to act in this world in beauty, and in truth, and in grace, and in mercy. Thank you for your goodness to us, Father. May we continually celebrate that goodness by sharing it with the people that we love that are around us, that you put into our worlds. We pray in your name. Amen.